Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, a group of ultra-conservative lawmakers go rogue, making a side deal with President Trump and pushing the House health care bill further to the right. And a battle over school choice in Iowa may be a preview for a larger national fight over the White House's vision for American education. It's Friday, March 24th. Senate Press. Hi, I'm trying to reach Jennifer Steinhauer. One minute. It was supposed to be a historic day for Republicans, the most anticipated since the election of President Trump, as the House of Representatives voted on a plan to repeal President Obama's health care law and replace it with Congressman Paul Ryan's. That, at least, was the idea. Around 3.30 p.m. on Thursday, House leaders called it. They didn't have the votes. Hello? Jennifer. Hey, it's Michael. Yeah. Hey, hey. Jennifer Steinhauer has been tracking this vote all week. We checked back in with her shortly after the delay was announced. Um, are you back in the phone booth? Here I am, here in the phone booth. <laughs> the House will be in order. As Thursday started... The prayer will be offered by our guest chaplain, Pastor Bob McGregor. What was the state of things? Lord, <clears throat> we come today with thanksgiving for the work of your grace in establishing this great work called America. So Thursday morning, we woke up assuming that the House was going to attempt to pass their health care bill on the floor, although that always seemed a little iffy because we didn't think they had the votes. President Trump met with members from the House Freedom Caucus, and while they didn't have a deal with the um, House Freedom Caucus, they seemed to be closer. I am still a no at this time. I'm desperately trying to get to yes, and uh, I think the president knows that. I told him that personally. Just a quick reminder, who is the Freedom Caucus and what exactly is their problem with the bill? The Freedom Caucus is a bit of an amorphous group because they won't name their members, but we <laughs> think it to be somewhere between you know 30 and 40 very conservative um, members. And there are people who usually are at odds or at loggerheads with leadership because they're always trying to push legislation farther to the right Mm -hmm. than even most members, and certainly members in the Senate, are willing to go. And I just want to pause, Michael, to note how extraordinary it is that a group of conservative members basically went outside the purview of their leadership and went to the White House and separately negotiated terms of a House bill that had rushed as it may be, right. and it was incredibly rushed, it was voted on in committee, was readying for the House floor, and they 
unilaterally as a group went to the White House to renegotiate it. It's rather extraordinary and, by the way, seemed to have been at least moderately, if not completely, successful in doing so. <laughs> and I, I can say with all the Freedom Caucus, they are really trying to get to yes. I, that's why we met for such a long time. Uh, it was. Uh, so what are the repercussions of this group, the Freedom Caucus, kind of going rogue and doing a side deal with the White House? Well, one repercussion seems to be that they're moving the bill to the right, Mm -hmm. which um, could pick off too many um, Republicans who are not in the Freedom Caucus. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is when you have Republicans and Democrats fighting, it's kind of clear, right? Mm -hmm. Republicans want one thing, Democrats want another thing. But the worst thing you can have is fighting within your own party. (laughs) Because everything you do to try to um, get a bill passed only with your own party means you have compromise in a way that is hurting one group and helping another group. And it's just really hard to get to the math when you're trying to do something only with your own party. In a bipartisan way, mm. you can tick off some people. And the Democrats, you can tick off some Republicans, and you find a bunch of group folks in the middle. But when you've decided to go your own way with your own party, realizing you're probably not going to get a single Democrat to go with you, then you have to find unity within your party. And when you move too far to the right, you take a lot of people down with you. Is Paul Ryan who's most identified with this Republican health care plan, angry? I mean, is this really even his bill anymore? It's interesting. If Paul Ryan gets angry about things other than the Packers, I don't know. How <laughs> he doesn't show it. We can fix this problem. He has a good game face. We promised the American people we would fix this problem. I don't think that any House Speaker is ever tickled by the far-right flank because they're always a thorn. Having said that, look... If this meeting with the House Freedom Caucus changes the bill enough that they can get it, enough votes to get out of the House, I think Speaker Ryan will actually be happy with that outcome. His goal right now is to pass a bill that does what Republicans have been saying they're going to do for seven years, which is repeal and replace Obamacare. That's his goal. Get it out of the House. From there in the Senate, that's their problem. So the Freedom Caucus gets this side deal with the White House. In the simplest terms, what were the changes that they won? Well, we don't know yet, because they said they don't have a deal yet. But we uh, we understand it, and we're still trying to report this out as we speak, Michael, but as we understand it, they would just like to see further regulations taken out. What are some examples of that? Maternity care, um, primary annual primary care visit, you know, the Medicaid pr- program not expand. They'd like to see that shrink. Um, and there are some other um, sort of regulations or requirements in the bill that they would like to see removed. The members of the Freedom Caucus thank the president for engaging with them throughout their negotiations. And the president likewise thanked the group for their willingness to work closely with the White House and their colleagues to craft the strongest bill possible. So White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer announces this side deal. This meeting was, I think, a very positive step towards achieving that goal. Is there any sort of plan if the bill does not pass tonight? What is the plan? It's going to pass. So that's it. And then not long after that. We have uh, not gotten uh, enough of our members to get to yes at this point. House leaders postpone the vote. Are these two things connected? Well, I think that that's um, an interesting leap that something happened. I think maybe nothing happened and still nothing happened. Hmm. As we all know, Sean Spicer has a very elastic view of um, things being finished or things being finalized or things being um, factual. Hmm. So I think he was taking an optimistic um, out look on what happened to that meeting um, and probably uh, inferred that that was going to equal a vote that was not ready to happen in terms of how House leaders saw it. Jennifer, if I'm a Republican in the House right now trying to decide how to vote on this thing, 
I'm stuck between two pretty tough choices. I could vote for this bill that a bunch of nonpartisan groups say will kick my constituents off of their health care, and they're going to be pretty furious with me about it. Or I could vote against it and hurt this new president in my party who says this is the first big legislative thing he needs to get done. Is that the essential tension for these Republicans, regardless of their ideology or what faction they're in? Let's not decouple the president's political fortunes and members of Congress. Hmm. Look, there's a Quinnipiac poll out on Thursday that showed popularity uh, for that bill to be at about 17%. I mean, that's a pretty standing number for um, a reputable, basically nonpartisan uh, polling outfit. Mm-hmm. So most members are taking a chance with this bill for themselves. And President Trump is rolling the dice that it will be popular for him when he has to be reelected. So their fortunes are um, inextricably tied. And it's not necessarily clear that giving a win for him is helps or hurts them. It's, they probably track pretty close together. Let's pretend this bill, which has now got its side deal and it's looking a little more conservative than it had before, let's assume it gets through the House and heads to the Senate. Given the changes that have been made to satisfy various factions in the House, what kind of chances is it now going to have in the Senate? There are zero chances that the bill as it gets off the floor of the House, is going to pass in that form in the Senate. Wow. Jennifer, thank you very much. No problem. Maybe we'll see you back in the phone booth on Monday. <sighs> we always like to meet you in the phone booth, Michael. <laughs> see you. Bye, Jennifer. See you later. Bye. As of Thursday night, The Times was reporting that the bill had 146 of the 216 votes it needs to pass. That's 70 votes short. 58 Republicans were undecided or leaning no. 33 of them said they'd vote no. It's going to be terrific. You're going to be very, very happy. President Trump has called on the House to vote on the bill today. Call your local representative. Call your senator. Let them know that you're behind our plan. We'll be right back. This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. Um, are we rolling? <laughs> Dana Goldstein is an education reporter at The Times. Dana, one of my colleagues sent me this. What exactly is it? This is a viral Facebook campaign launched by Iowans for Public Education. And one of their big issues is preventing the expansion of private school vouchers. And sort of like, what's going on here? We see a mom here. She's very yuppie-ish <laughs> seeming. She looks like she just stepped off like a boat in Cape Cod with her <laughs> um, nautical striped shirt. And what does it say? Do you want me to read it? Yeah, good. It says, My husband and I have decided the local parks just aren't good enough for our kids. We'd rather use the country club, <laughs> and we are hoping state tax dollars will pay for it. We are advocating for park savings accounts, or PSAs. <laughs> We promise to no longer use the local parks, to hell with anyone else or the community as a whole. 
We want our tax dollars to be used to make the best choice for our family. Sound ridiculous? Tell your legislator to vote no on education savings accounts, a.k.a. school vouchers. It's a satirical ad. It's pretty clever. But this is really a debate of first principles. Okay, so let's back up for a minute. Uh, Why are we talking about an ad from Iowa, and why did you go to Iowa? Well, my editor and I were looking at the fact that 31 states across the country, which is, you know, more than half, a really large number, are considering bills this year that would send more public taxpayer dollars toward private education. So basically, in the states, legislators are currently debating policies that are just like the ones that President Trump. We are going to give students choice. And his lightning rod secretary of education betsy devos are promoting from washington the reality is that when you give parents choices they make good choices on behalf of their kids and they're happy with how their kids are doing and actually betsy devos does not have a lot of power in washington to get this done that surprises me federal government controls very little about education almost all of it comes from the state and local level So although President Trump says he would like a $250 million federal school choice program, it's a tough haul to get that through Congress. But Betsy DeVos has spent millions and millions over the years funding state-level advocacy groups, Mm -hmm. state-level politicians who are pushing this at the state level. These are our children. No two look alike and no two learn alike. So why did I go to Iowa? Yeah, Iowa. All Iowa children deserve the best. And education savings accounts can make that happen. Paid for by the Iowa Alliance for Choice in Education. First, it has unified Republican control right now, the governor and both houses of the state legislature. So it seemed like if any state could really make this happen, it would be Iowa. Okay, so you just got back. What is the lay of the land? What's the context for this debate about school vouchers and school choice there? Sure. Well, I was a swing state. If you go to Des Moines, you meet a lot of liberals. It's not the sort of white, rural type of landscape that comes to mind when you think of Iowa. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the you know Catholic schools I visited are serving largely a black or Hispanic student population, not that different from an urban school we might see here in New York mm-hmm. City. Danny, you met a woman named Mary Kakeo when you were reporting in Ooh. Iowa. And we actually called her during her lunch break at work. Hello? Hey, Mary, it's Michael. How are you? Excellent. Who is she? Mary is an immigrant from Uganda. She herself attended Catholic schools. Basically, I'm a Christian, and um, I went to a Catholic school until I finished high school. And I felt the morals and values that my children are obtaining from there. So she enrolled her daughters at St. Teresa Catholic. My child at this point, especially both of them, really are very respectable. I'm not saying that other children are not. Mm-hmm. I feel they are getting the education that I value. And the tuition there is about $3,000 per year, and 65% of that is paid through Iowa's current voucher program. It might be different um, from other you know, families, but my Children really feel comfortable. They feel like it's a home. In Iowa, there's 140 schools participating in the current voucher program, and only five are not Christian or Catholic. That's a really big number. So basically, almost all the private schools we're talking about here are religious schools. Yes, and that would be the case pretty much nationwide. In voucher programs, typically about 80% of participating schools do have some sort of religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. So that's Des Moines, but, you know, you drive an hour outside of Des Moines to a town like Pella, 
which is an industrial town, and it's almost entirely white. I think what's really interesting about Iowa and reflects our national politics when it comes to education is that people in rural areas, although they voted for Trump in large numbers and are enthusiastic about him, they're not the natural constituency for school vouchers. Because if you have to drive your child 50 miles to get to the second closest school, you probably just want that school that's closer to your house to be higher quality. Mm -hmm. So what is the fight right now in Iowa over the future of school choice. What has been proposed this legislative season is something called an education savings account. What is an education savings account? An education savings account, or ESA, is a government-authorized savings account loaded with a portion of money the state has allocated for education. And ESAs are the big new thing in private school choice. It's a debit card. You might have five or $6,000 on your debit card, and if you withdraw your child from public school, you can spend it on whatever you want. Really? Yes, you could spend it on you know, reimbursing yourself for costs of homeschooling your child. You could spend it on tuition at a private school. You could spend it on enrolling your child in an online virtual education program that they're doing all day on their laptop. Mm-hmm. Now, if the private school tuition is $3,000, mm-hmm. which is a typical Catholic school private tuition in Iowa, you still have $2,000 left, and you can put that into your child's college savings account. And as long as they attend college later on in Iowa, all that money is yours at the end when they're 18. Where does the money come from to pay for ESAs? People in communities pay income taxes, sales taxes, or both. Those funds become the revenue the state uses to pay for education. The original proposal um, that Republicans in Iowa State Senate were pushing would have made that $5,000 per child available to anyone. So if you made a million dollars per year, your kid could still get it. If you're currently in private school and have never stepped foot in public school a day of your life, you are also eligible. It's basically a big financial giveaway to anyone who is choosing something other than public education and at massive cost, hundreds of millions of dollars per year to the state budget. Who exactly is threatened by this voucher program if what we're talking about are parents like Mary, who this seems to be giving a little leg up to making something possible that's really important to them, you know, who's most worried about it? A lot of people are worried about it. I mean, public school parents, teachers unions, school district officials are really worried that this will impact the funding of public schools. And are they right? It's complicated. A lot of state funding per education is per pupil. So the money follows the child. But, you know, one analogy I hear is that let's say you have 27 children in the classroom Mm -hmm. and it goes down to 25. You still need the classroom. You still need the teacher. You still need to turn the lights on. So even the loss of, you know, a small percentage of students from a public school to a private school could have significant funding impacts. Where does this legislation stand in Iowa right now? What are its chances of actually becoming law? It's interesting. From the time I began the reporting in early February, the likelihood of the bill becoming law went down significantly. There was a lot of pushback, and some of it came from conservatives, the rural conservatives, as Hmm. we mentioned, and then also people that just felt this is too expensive. I think what we're seeing is that it's a very heavy lift to get these programs into law, that it's not just 
Democrats and public school parents and teachers unions who oppose this idea, but there are a lot of natural skeptics in the Republican Party as well. Hmm. So in the end, does having a national education leader like Betsy DeVos in the White House supporting this make any difference at the state level? I think it does because they have such a loud bully pulpit. And Republicans in Iowa, I think, are more excited than they would be about seeing if there's any way Mm -hmm. to get this through. Because, as they told me, you know, President Trump is talking about this. It makes them more excited about the issue for sure. But it doesn't make it any easier. It's so far it hasn't made it easier, no. Dana, thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. So, last question. Yeah. I want to ask you about your decision to send your children to St. Teresa. In the debate that's going on in Iowa right now over just how much money to devote to school vouchers, one of the criticisms from public school parents is that this, to them, becomes a subsidy for people who send their children to religious schools, and they don't think that that is fair. What do you say to those parents? My advice to them is, you know, we need to follow our heart. And we need to do what is right for our children. So basically what I did was good for my child. So I will just leave that up to, you know, it's a country of free opinion. I think it would be parent to parent on what they decide for their children. Yeah. Here's what else you need to know today. After careful deliberation, I have concluded that I cannot support Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court. Senate Democrats, led by Chuck Schumer, are vowing to filibuster the confirmation of President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. He will have to earn 60 votes for confirmation. My vote will be no, and I urge my colleagues to do the same. Senate approval requires 51 votes. A filibuster requires 60, making it far harder for Gorsuch to win approval. And Britain has identified the attacker who killed four people outside of Parliament as Khalid Massoud, a 52-year-old British native with a long criminal history. The Islamic State is claiming responsibility for the attack. Mr. Speaker, yesterday an act of terrorism tried to silence our democracy. But today we meet as normal as generations have done before us and as future generations will continue to do, to deliver a simple message. We are not afraid, and our resolve will never waver in the face of terrorism. And we meet here in the oldest of all parliaments because we know that democracy and the values it entails will always prevail. Finally, The Trump administration is ordering tougher screening of visa applicants to the United States, making it harder for millions of foreigners to enter the country. It's the first evidence of Trump's campaign promise of extreme vetting. The new rules do not apply to countries whose citizens can enter the U.S. without visas, such as France and Germany. The Daily is produced by Theo Balcom, Andy Mills, and Lisa Tobin. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Special thanks to Samantha Hennig, Pedro Rosado, Andrew Phelps, Michaela Bouchard, Peter Sale, Kathleen Osborne, and Pike Malinowski. 
That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you on Monday. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped 1 million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more.